So if there's one subject that tends to get thought about, written about, um, even uh, expressed artistically more than any other, it is um, how do we deal with the um, how do we deal with the song as uh, to paraphrase C.S. Lewis, the song that is deep in our bones of a land that is far away, of a place distantly remembered. Um, Thinking about heaven, thinking about the life of the world to come, thinking about the life everlasting, I think there is no more critical, um, there's no more critical thing to be unified in, in terms of what we believe the scriptures to teach. Because as you well know, um, generally speaking, we live our lives with some sort of end or result in mind. So how do we view the life of the world to come? How do we understand what it is when we say, I believe in the life everlasting? If the drama of redemption were a play, we could say that there were at least four major acts. In Act 1, in creation, we had it all. In Act 2, in the fall, we lost it all. In Act 3, in the person and work of Jesus Christ, he did it all. And through him, we can actually see the hope of Act 4, which is we get it all. This is the gospel. This is good news. And so this morning, we look at how the Bible envisions the age to come as not the end of the book, but the, uh, the prologue to the next chapter yet to be written as God's people live and reign with him. We're in the Apostle John's um, vision this morning in the book of Revelation, chapter 22, verses 1 through 5. Um, Turn there, if you would, and stand with me as we hear God's word read. John writes, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will will need no lamp, no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, to say, I believe, is not to engage in 
memorization of facts, nor is it to simply acknowledge, but it is to lean into with every fiber of our being that which is essential and foundational. And so this day, as we come and bring our myriad of emotions, as we bring our joy and our pain, our delight and our frustration, our exuberance and our apathy, meet us here. Give us a picture of what we have to look forward to. And would that picture delight us so that it ruins us for everything else this world has or could offer that is not from your hand? Do these things we pray. For the sake of Jesus, we ask it. Amen. Be seated if you would. What your expectation is of the life of the world to come hinges largely on what you believe this life is all about. If you do a survey of the major religions of the world, you would find varying answers of what the life of the world to come actually means. For instance, um, if you were in some strains of Islam... Um, The picture of the world to come is a picture of a paradise where as a heroic man, um, you would have 60 or so companions to serve you. If this were Buddhism, the goal is to end the cycle of suffering and to simply cease to exist altogether. Hinduism teaches there is a continuous cycle of rebirth and through karma, you either move up or down the chain of being. You might be reborn as a king or a queen if you're good or a rat or an insect if you're bad. Mormonism imagines a heaven where you might be able to rule your own planet as a kind of mini-god. But I bet if you surveyed all of um, all the people around you, there is still an uncertainty about the life of the world to come. And people find themselves in this place where they say, I don't know. And they end up treating this world like it's it. And all of a sudden now, we are once again faced with the curse of Genesis 3. And we functionally live as a people turned in on ourselves. Because after all, if I can only enjoy what I have right now, and I can't take it with me, then I might as well live it up while I can. And so here's the problem all of those. None of those are what the Bible teaches. None of those are what the Bible teaches. 
So this morning we turn our hearts to see what John is saying in this picture of the life of the world to come, the picture that we see here through the vision that the Lord gave the Apostle John is of a world renewed and restored. This is what the creed boasted in when it talked of life everlasting, not heaven. Heaven is the waiting room. What we're talking about is what happens when heaven descends and the earth is made new. That's what we say we believe in. Part of the story, as my friend Dustin said, is that I am bound for the promised land. The full story is that the promised land is bound for me. So what did John say? There are three things that he talked about in this text that I think are really important to frame how we view the life of the world to come. He said, in the life of the world to come, there is going to be healing. We need to understand what that is. He said there's going to be worship. And he said that there's going to be a people who reign with the Lamb forever. Revelation 21 and 22 have been some of the most uh, studied, pondered over, and hotly debated um, texts of Scripture. And Revelation 21.1 through 22.5 really do serve as a single literary unit. So what I'm going to do for us this morning, even though I didn't print uh, all of chapter 21 in your program, is catch us up for just a moment. Uh, but I'll start with what John says in Revelation 21.1, when he begins to speak of the new heavens and the new earth. He says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Now, one thing that we have to be clear about here is what John is saying when he uses the word new. He's not saying new like I went clothes shopping for new clothes because they were worn out, because the laundry shrunk them, obviously. When we say we went shopping for new clothes, it means we took one wardrobe, chunked it, and put a new one in its place. But if I use the expression, I've been eating better recently and I feel like a new man, it doesn't mean that the old me was thrown out into the garbage heap and there's a new me there instead. What it means instead is that I've been transformed. And this word that John uses here for new brings with it all of the weight of transformation, not replacement. When we think about this earth, when we think about this world, when we think about what exactly it is that God is doing in his creative and redemptive purposes in this world, it is not for this world to be thrown out into the heaven's garbage heap. It is that this world and all that is in it is transformed. That's what John said when he said, There I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw a holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And then verse 3. 
I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. The first thing that we see going on here is this picture of the temple. Now, what was the, what was the temple um, to Israel? The temple to Israel was the place, it was the dwelling place of God in the midst of his people. And in the, in the new earth, God dwells fully with men, which signifies that the whole new creation will become a temple for God. And then the next thing that we see later on in the text is the dimensions of the new Jerusalem. It's given in cubic measurement. Why is it given that? Well, the dimensions of the Holy of Holies, um, the, it's the same shape as the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle and in the temple in Revelation 21, 16. In 21.16, we see these dimensions given. This is metaphor. It is a way of saying that the whole renewed creation will become the throne room of God, the place where God's glory is known as fully as possible. Now, jump over with me to um, chapter 22, verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Now, God's people would have been very attuned to this language because water has always played a significant role in the people of God's world. You see, partly because in the ancient Near East, water is life. Water is life. If you don't have a water source, you have no life. You can't water your crops. You can't feed your livestock. You can't care for yourself. Water is life. In the Garden of Eden, water flowed. In God's rescue of God's people, God's people were brought through the waters of the river and Pharaoh's army swamped. When God's people would enter into the tabernacle and later into the temple, there would be a large basin, a large bowl there at the beginning that they would, they would run their hands through, they would wash themselves in it. And it would be a reminder that this water is part of our story. This water is a part of our story because God brought us through this water. Later, it would be Jesus who would be baptized in the waters. Later, it would be Jesus that would speak a word and calm the storm. It would calm the sea, the chaos. Later still, it would be Paul that would see the linkage between the people of God being brought through the water and our baptism. And finally, we see the picture of water here again. When Revelation says the sea will be no more, this doesn't mean that we don't have oceans. It means that all of the things that signified chaos and uncertainty and destruction in the world, all of that is no more. 
Instead, what we see is that there is a river, a stream flowing from the throne of God. So bright, so clear. It is now the fullest picture that we see of prophecies that began in Zechariah chapter 14, verse 8, and later in Ezekiel chapter 47. Now John sees it with the eyes that the Spirit has given him to see it and describes it in ways that we see God supplying everything that the world needs. The angel shows John this, that this water, this liquid life flows from the throne of God in such abundance and volume that it will flush the salty brine of the Dead Sea and make it fresh water. But beyond that, we see something else, don't we? Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit. Where did we last see the tree of life? We last saw the tree of life in the garden, didn't we? And in the garden, it was the tree that was forbidden to be eaten of. And what calamity that would have been if Adam and Eve, in their fallen and sinful state, had eaten from the tree of life. And so they were banished from the garden. And what we see here is that God's creative and redemptive purposes are now coming to their full fruition because the tree of life, now again in, pro- in prominent center of the city, offers this. It offers, its, um, it offers its leaves. They're bearing fruit. Now, there's no time, obviously, in the new heavens and the new earth because there's no longer sun nor moon. There is rather the radiance and the glory of God giving light to the earth. But what John is saying here is something that's very intelligible to us. We see that this tree is giving over its fruit in abundance. There is no lack. There is no absence of provision or blessing. But he also goes on and he says that the leaves, the end of verse 2, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Now, we need to understand what he means by this word healing because it can't be a healing from sin. It can't be a healing from ill. It can't be a healing from malady. Why? Because none of those things are present. If you look back at chapter 21, verse 27, John writes this, but nothing unclean will ever enter it into the city. Nothing unclean will ever, will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are, who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So what does it mean then when John talks about healing here? We would be better served to understand when he says it is for the healing of the nations. We would be better, we would be better served to understand that as health-giving. Um, it is it is given uh, not for the uh, not for the correcting of ills which do not exist, but rather um, the leaves of the tree promote the enjoyment of life in the new city. Seeing the comment that it's for the nations reminds us that God is not seeking to simply save 
a tiny handful of people. I remember when I was in high school, we had a, a youth retreat one time and, 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 and a very tearful um, evening session as we were gathered around talking about the things that scare us the most and talking about the things that give us the most unrest about what the Bible says. And a friend of mine raised her hand and said, I don't understand what it means when it talks about the 144,000. Is that it? And there are some out there that would say that that's it, right? It's only the people that have got their theology just so. It's only the ones that have crossed every T and dotted every I. But if we look at that number and if we look at what it means, it means perfect fulfillment, completion. It is what Jesus said when he said, it is finished that none whom the Father has given me will I lose And as we heard in our assurance of pardon this morning, a great multitude that no one could count. I'm pretty sure we have smart people that could count to 144,000 if they tried. But rather a great multitude that no one could count from every tribe, from every tongue, from every people, from every nation. And so the fact that this tree is given its leaves as a healing balm for the nations is once again a reminder that this gospel is a glorious gospel, a world-encompassing gospel where God has sent his son to rescue, ransom, and redeem a people for his own possession from all across the globe, and they'll all be there. This is what we see God promising, and this is what John is experiencing, that God's lavish, abundant, gracious provision is there for the people of God in the midst of the city. God is not seeking to save a tiny handful and destroy a vast majority. God is rather bringing the Gentiles into the holy city And God's purposes will not be defeated. There is, however, for us, a people who live in this already and not yet, a hope of that day that will come. There is a hope that there will be in this transformation of the world that we will wake one day and all of the things that have made us sad and all of the things that have caused us great heartache and grief, indeed, everything that has beset and everything that has, that has crippled us, everything that has maligned us in this world are no more. And there is a promise of the day that is coming when God's people are resurrected and who are restored to him and that all sad things have been wiped away by the very one who bore our burden on the tree. It is Jesus who will wipe away every tear from our eyes, not because the pain doesn't matter, but because the pain is no more. And so, beloved, listen, it is for us this day to have our hope set on a sure day that will come where it will no longer be a struggle to wake up in the morning. It will no longer be a struggle to put on your happiest face. It will no longer be a struggle to ask, why does tragedy happen in the world? Because at that point and on that day, all sad things will be made untrue. But if we're living as if this world is it, and we better enjoy it all now, we find ourselves again and again blocked 
to basically function as a human, much less enjoy the world. That's not good news hope. There's a better world coming. The second thing that we see in this text is that there is worship. What are all of these people from every tribe and nation and tongue being brought into this new city for? They're being brought in for worship. Verse 3. No longer will there be, will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. Now this language reminds us of what happened, um, of, of the types of language that we saw uh, for God's people and specifically for the priesthood in Chronicles and in Leviticus. We see this language showing up again. I want you to see that in verses 3 and 4, it's, it's ripe with liturgical language. The whole earth is the temple, and all of God's people are attendants in the temple. The citizens of the holy city are in the capacity of priests to serve God and the Lamb. The temple was a symbol of heaven on earth and a place where the life of heaven could be known in the most clear and powerful way. In the new creation, earth and heaven have merged so that there is no longer any meaningful distinction. The life of heaven has now thoroughly pervaded and transformed the earth so that the Lord's, the Lord's prayer is finally given its ultimate amen. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There is a day coming when Jesus will answer that prayer with its full and final amen. Let it be so. When he brings the new heaven and the new earth. James Torrance in his book, Worship Community and the Triune Grace of God, says this, that worship is the gift of participating through the Spirit in the incarnate Son's communion with the Father. It means participating in union with Christ in what he has done for us once and for all in his self-offering to the Father, in his life and death on the cross. It, it also means participating in what he is continuing to do for us in the presence of the Father on his, and in his mission from the Father to the world. Thus, the prime purpose of the incarnation in the love of God is to live, uh, to lift us up into a life of communion, of participation in the very triune life of God. You see, when we worship here and now, this day, we are, we are training, we're preparing, we are being readied to reign with God. It is in this place, it is in this space, it is in this time when God by his spirit condescends to us and, and lifts us into the heavenlies with all of the saints who have gone before and all the saints even now around the world. And together we join our voices mysteriously with them in the company of heaven to the glory of the Lamb. And the beautiful thing about what is going to be happening on that day is that worship is going to be fulfilled. The word of God, hearing God speak, will be done no longer through a veil, 
Um, It will not be through the eyes and the ears of faith, but instead through the gift of sight. We will be able to see God himself in the person of Jesus Christ as fully as finite creatures possibly can. God will speak and all will be well. But not only that, the relationship of God with men and women will become perfect, fully mature, and infinitely satisfying. In fact, the whole of creation is now sacramental. The whole of creation is a tangible way to know God and to worship him. Verse 4, they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. Dr. Simon Kistemacher in his commentary on Revelation says this. He says, all who have the name of the Lamb and of the Father written on their foreheads will see him. The Lamb redeemed his people and brought them into the presence of the Father. It is through Christ that his saints have the privilege of seeing God in eternity. The imprint of the divine name on, the, on their foreheads of the saints signifies that as residents of the new Jerusalem, they belong to God, bear his image and likeness, and are citizens of his kingdom. When we gather, we rehearse our future into our present. But the life everlasting, the life of the world to come, is not just abundant enjoyment, though it is that. And it is not just uh, perpetual worship, though it is that. It is also to reign. Look at verse 5. And night will be no more. They will not need uh, light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light. And they will reign forever and ever. It is in this life everlasting, beloved, that redemption is completed. The guilt, the power, the presence of sin is eradicated, and thus death will be no more. Creation is is matured and, and glorified. God's ultimate purpose of creation will be realized as Jesus brings the creation to its full maturity and glory. The biblical story that began in the garden ends in a garden city. The advance of human culture and dominion over the creation is is now brought to its fullest maturity here in the life of the world to come. Indeed, all the kings of the world will bring the glory of the nations into the new creation, and humanity will serve and reign with Christ forever. What it means to reign with Jesus um, the word brings with it the weight of a, um, a blessed or an exalted state. We share, as one commentator put it, we share in royalty. N.T. Wright says this. He says, as heaven and earth come together, as the bride and the lamb come together, So the garden and the city come together as well. Humans in community with one another and with God are to exercise their delighted and wise stewardship over the earth and its fruits in the glorious light that comes from the throne. Here's the thing. We have jobs in heaven. We have jobs to cultivate and to work 
all of the things that have uh, so maligned the world, so upset the state and the, uh, the place of the world are no more. And it is now this garden that has become a garden empire where we are now as God's stewards able to till and to sow, to reap and to harvest, to cultivate and to enjoy and to do so without the mere hint of sin corrupting anything, all to the glory of the Lamb in his presence forevermore. That's not floating on clouds on harps. That's a life with purpose and hope and joy. What does it mean then to say, I believe? When you say, I believe, it is saying that I believe into, that I stake my claim on this. At the beginning of the series, I quoted from J.I. Packer where he said, I am believing into God. That is to say, over and above believing certain truths about God, I am living in a relation of commitment to God and trust and union. When I say I believe in God, I'm professing my conviction that God has invited me to this commitment and declaring that I have accepted his invitation. Friends, there are lots of things we can talk about. We can debate and discuss. We can talk about whether there is a tribulation that becomes before, during, after, or I don't know in the millennium. But that's not this. We can talk about whether or not God's people will actually be a part of a tribulation, but that's not this. We can talk about what it means for, um, for the nations to be brought to the kingdom. But when we say, I believe, we're saying that this picture of what John saw is what we are staking our hope on that we are bound for the promised land and the promised land is bound for us and that we are not a people destined for heaven. We're just passing through heaven on the way to the resurrection and the life of the world to come. Would that be our hope today?